Have you ever looked forward to jury duty? Have you volunteered in the past year? Have you talked to your neighbor recently? Have you voted in every local, state, and national election since you were eligible? Do you know who your local representatives are? Welcome to this episode of Hot Philosophy, the podcast where we break down the toughest ideas and bring them into the everyday. Today's episode will be an audio version of my raison d'être, my senior thesis, excuse my horrifying pronunciation. Well, I wish my thesis was that, but really, it's 58 pages of somewhat interesting political theory. So let me try to make it worth your time on today's episode. Let's go back to those questions from the beginning of the pod. Even if you are one of those special, perfect citizens that said yes to every single one of my questions, let's take a look at how the country fares more broadly. The United States has historically been characterized by its rich and vibrant civic life, as famously documented by Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Yet church, synagogue, and mosque membership are at an all-time low. Volunteering rates have fallen in recent years, reaching a low of 24.9% of Americans in 2015. The Gallup Poll Social Series reports that over 78% of Americans belong to at least one community group in 1974, whereas only 65% did in 2004. Americans are also spending less time with their neighbors. Voter turnout reached its highest point since 1980 in 2020's presidential election. Yet even with this historic achievement, only 61.7% of the voting age population voted, and the U.S. only ranked 24 out of its 35 OECD peers in voter turnout. There are also disparities in who votes, with white 60-plus and highly educated groups consistently achieving the highest turnout for the past 30 years. 60% of young people say they know little or nothing about congressional candidates in their district. Since 2010, at least 15 states have put more restrictive voter ID laws into place, 12 have made it tougher for citizens to register to vote, and 3 have made it tougher to restore voting rights for those with past criminal convictions. Only 50% of young people view jury duty as part of good citizenship, and a quick search on Google grants you a wiki hat with 12 steps to get out of jury duty. But these changes in American public life aren't just limited to behaviors, but also to how we think about one another. The GSS reports that in 1972, 45.8% of Americans believed that others could be trusted. But in 2016, just 31.3% of Americans believed that others could be trusted. Furthermore, in 1994, only 16% of Democrats and 17% of Republicans had unfavorable views of the other. Yet by 2014, 38% of Democrats and 43% of Republicans had an unfavorable view of the other. At least for myself, I certainly feel these numeric trends reflected in my experience with American politics. All of these metrics, membership in community groups, attitude towards jury duty, voter turnout, our perceptions of one another, all of these are markers of the health of a democracy and we are declining on all fronts. What does it mean for us to live in a democracy if people cannot trust one another, they do not help one another, and do not talk to one another? What does it mean for us to live in an electoral political body if barely half the population votes, it is increasingly tough to vote, and young people and non-white individuals vote at lower rates than the rest of the population? Can the United States be considered a proper democracy? And how can we remedy these shortcomings? Paper attempts an answer at the very last question. How can we bridge the gap between what democracy should be and what it actually looks like? How do you build a better democratic citizen? 
This brings us to the crux of my own belief and the focus of this paper. As the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines it, Civic education consists of all the processes that affect people's beliefs, commitments, capabilities, and actions as members or prospective members of communities. If we are concerned with developing a better democratic citizen, part of the answer seems to lie in civic education, or the means by which people learn how to be members of their communities. Dewey, one of the most influential thinkers on education in the U.S., offers us some clarity on the importance of civic education to democracy through his work, The Public and Its Problems. Dewey distinguishes between democracy as a social idea and democracy as a system of government. Democracy as a system of government consists of all the practices we associate with democracy like majority rule. Democracy as a social idea is all of those, those conditions which allow the public to function democratically. For Dewey, democracy is a social idea is the natural ideal of associated life, and the most ideal association is community, where everyone shares the same view of the good and works together to sustain it. As Dewey states, whereas associated or joint activity is a condition of the creation of a community, association itself is physical and organic, while communal life is moral, that is emotionally, consciously sustained. Community requires another layer of conscious commitment beyond just the animal instinct driving association. So how are we meant to get from animal association to community, the foundation of democracy? Dewey contends that we are not born members of a community. The young have to be brought within the traditions, outlook, and interests which characterize a community by means of education, by unremitting instruction, and by learning in connection with the phenomena of overt association. Everything which is distinctly human is learned, not native. We are not born knowing how to engage in a community. It's a learned human institution. He describes this unique type of human education that serves as a transition from association to community, allowing for that foundational element of democracy. So as Dewey puts it, we need civic education or this education aimed at making an individual a member of a community, because without it, the community cannot be formed, and consequently, democracy cannot exist. So at this point, even if you can agree that some type of education is necessary to help people live well together, you might be asking, how is theory relevant to this discussion? Wouldn't it be better to just look at the empirics and see what works? Leading contemporary education thinker Amy Gutman offers a clear and decisive answer. All significant policy prescriptions presuppose a theory of the proper role of government in education. Where the theory remains implicit, we cannot adequately judge its principles or the policy prescriptions that flow from them. In other words, what do we mean when we say what works? As Gutman articulates, this notion of better or worse education is rooted in a theory of the proper role of government. Any meaningful discussion on how to improve education policy requires us to unpack and be clear about the principles motivating the policies. There is no one objectively good policy, but different policies that best realize different principles. Talking about theory enables us to get to the root of our views and understand why we should prioritize certain policies and what types of goals they prioritize. I've tried to defend my theoretical approach here, and now I want to discuss what my paper actually tries to accomplish. Dewey offers a distilled version of what the rest of my paper seeks to articulate. That institutions alone are simply not enough for a functioning democracy. 
I've selected three thinkers, Mill, Schumpeter, and Habermas, to reflect a diversity and spectrum of democratic theory. Each of their theories serves as a unique interpretation of what civic education might look like in practice. As I will demonstrate, despite the differences between these three theories, all necessitate some form of civic education to realize their ideal democracies. Even the most minimalist democracy requires civic education to shape citizens for successful democracy. Furthermore, when considering the thinkers in a contemporary context by applying their ideas to contemporary state civic education policies, it grows clear that Mill civic education is best able to fulfill its own aims and possibly be the most successful in producing the intelligent and high-quality citizens desired by all three theories of civic education. This is what I hope I can show you. Let's get into my three thinkers. Mill is the great participator. He bases his theory of democracy on the premise that good governance depends primarily on the quality of the underlying citizenry. What good are rules or institutions if people won't follow them and uphold them? Given this symbiotic relationship between man and government, Mill argues that the first and most important task of government is to promote virtue and intelligence in its citizens. Government also has to be able to manage its educated citizenry, so Mill identifies a second task of government, organizing and taking advantage of its virtuous citizenry. The ideal government is the one that best fulfills these two tasks, which for Mill is a fully popular government, where sovereignty is in the people. This government is best at educating people because he contends that only active, uncontented individuals can improve their intellect, morality, and overall being and only freedom or full citizenship can properly stimulate this type of active citizen. Improvement is wholly incompatible with government by the few where you have to submit to some ruler. Only by engaging in public affairs, which Mill calls a school of public spirit, can individuals think and grow beyond their personal interests. By thinking and talking and acting on public issues, people think beyond their menial day jobs and private concerns. It's also important to note that Mill writes on the heels of the Industrial Revolution and his work and ideas reflect the types of jobs and lives most people lived during this time. Popular government is also superior in fulfilling the secondary organizational task of government because A, a person's rights and interests are only secure when that person can stand up for them, and B, rooted in his utilitarian ideology, general welfare is maximized the greater and more diverse the agents are that contribute to it. From this idealized democratic government, we can see Mill's definition of civic education, participation or involvement in his school of public affairs. I will read a quote of his that encapsulates his view. It is by political discussion that the manual laborer, whose employment is a routine and whose way of life brings him in contact with no variety of impressions, circumstances, or ideas, is taught that remote causes and events which take place far off have a most sensible effect even on his personal interests. And it is from political discussion and collective political action that one whose daily occupations concentrate his interests in a small circle round himself learns to feel for and with his fellow citizens and becomes consciously a member of a great community. The individual consciously undergoes Dewey's distinctly human education under Mill's view to build that crucial community. And for Mill, this can only happen via participation. So we've considered our first school of democratic thought and civic education. Now let's get into Schumpeter, who is the ultimate elitist. You might have thought that it was the kid in your seminar who went to boarding school and frequently mentions his home in the Hamptons. But think again. 
First off, Schumpeter hates Mill's view. He thinks that there's no rational common good or will. And where Mill believes that the rational individual improves via the public realm, Schumpeter argues that the individual becomes increasingly dumb, irrational, and vulnerable via politics. It is just too far from everyday life for people to understand it. Necessarily, there needs to be an elite group of individuals who can serve as Schumpeter's politicians and leaders, and another group to be the bureaucrats, and finally the common man, or voter. The only way to ensure these groups of society and their corresponding qualities exist, according to Schumpeter, it's, it's social class. The nature of democratic politics is just so repellent that only social class can fulfill the requisite means of creating the necessary democratic citizens. So if we're defining civic education as the means by which to build the best citizen, then civic education for Schumpeter is social class. So Schumpeter has defined these different classes that have different roles in his democratic society, and yet he articulates that there have to be adequate quality individuals for each rung. Even mere citizens must have democratic self-control or respect for the democratic processes. We talked about how Schumpeter believes that all individuals are incredibly vulnerable in the public realm. Given this difficulty, he states that above all, electorates and parliaments must be on an intellectual and moral level high enough to be proof against the offerings of the crook and the crank. Or else men who are neither will be driven into the ways of both. There is a danger. So he needs intellect and morality in his people so that they can counteract this. So despite bemoaning the dumb, irrational, vulnerable individual, Schumpeter still calls for some type of quality to ensure his successful democracy. And as established, this intellectual and moral level is achieved via class, teaching people their place and affording people the correct value system, as according to Schumpeter. So setting aside our king of elitism, let's consider Habermas, our deliberator, might have been captain of the debate team at your high school. He starts from the premise that we live in a diverse, pluralist world. This reality necessitates an extremely procedural view of democracy, because our democratic processes cannot be legitimized by any background ethos or agreement, given just how different people and their beliefs are. He breaks from Mill and Schumpeter here. Instead, he places sovereignty in all the informal and formal deliberations that we have as citizens. Those conversations online or in coffee shops or at church that generate ideas and views that make their way to the legislative level, those are the only things that can legitimize democratic processes. The formation of political opinions and wills in the public sphere translates into institutional decisions that are juridically binding for all. If this all seems pretty abstract, consider the civil rights movement. He contends that it cannot be understood if you focus too much on the most obvious, visible, formal legislative assemblies. Instead, those understandings of our social world that are contested in our daily lives and encounters as members of a civil society that are eventually conveyed to representative realms, those are the things that are the sources and channels of real Republican self-government. Thus, Habermas's ideal democracy is a procedural one, legitimized by the debate and conversations of the people. So quality deliberations must be central and critical to Habermas's theory. 
And he argues that this quality can only be secured by the institutionalization of the right conditions for communication. In other words, citizens have to have deliberative attitudes and subscribe to the idea of a deliberative democracy. There are several possible ways to achieve this, and Habermas doesn't explicitly say how. Thinker Thomas Englund gives us one way, what he calls citizenship literacy. Socializing institutions like schools can develop the ability and interest among citizens for public deliberations on important moral and political questions. He gets even more specific, describing how citizenship literacy can uphold the pluralism that is crucial to Habermas's view. School curriculums should present children with issues that have multiple interpretations, and citizenship literacy would be best conducted by public schools because diverse stakeholders shape public education. So for Habermas, under this England reading, civic education is rooted in the school and class curriculums. So we have participation, social class, and schooling as three possible methods of civic education. And all three articulate some goal of producing intelligent, moral, high-quality humans that can fulfill the necessary tasks for successful democracy. But which theory best realizes this? How do these theories play out in contemporary society? To bring our thinkers into the 21st century, we will consider current state civic education programs through the lens of Mill, Schumpeter, and Habermas. The 2018 Brown Center Report on American Education an inventory of state civics requirements out of the Brookings Institute, utilizes the six proven practices for effective civic learning framework to categorize and classify the types of civic education that exist throughout the U.S. The proven practices framework is the closest to a contemporary expert consensus view on best practices for civic education. The report was only able to find sufficient data to code states according to their use of proven practice one, classroom instruction, Proven Practice 2, Discussion of Current Events. Proven Practice 3, Service Learning. Proven Practice 6, Simulations. And an added Proven Practice 7, News Media Literacy. Our first task will be to assign each thinker an ideal case study state. Our second task will be to assess how well each thinker achieves their goals. More specifically, how well the states fare in achieving Mill's empathy or communal feeling. Schumpeter's democratic self-control, and Habermas's pluralism. If we take Mill's view of learning by doing to its extreme, New Jersey is the only state in the Brookings coding schema that does not have any civic education classroom instruction requirements, but does exhibit all four of the other more participatory proven practices, discussion of current events, service learning simulations, and news media literacy. Each of these requires active participation by students as opposed to just instruction and information retention. That will be our first ideal case study state. Moving now to Schumpeter, if we take his dependence on social class to its extreme, we might suppose that Schumpeter would advocate for a 21st century civic education system with minimal school-led institutionalized civic learning. Alaska is one of two states that fulfills only one proven practice, according to the Brookings study, discussion of current events. Moving to our final thinker, under England's analysis, Habermas's deliberative democracy calls for the most intensive citizenship literacy training rooted in public schools, with ample opportunity for pluralistic deliberation and discussion. If we take this view to the extreme, we might consider states that are the most dedicated to civic education in the schooling system. According to the Brookings study, this would be states that utilize all of the proven practices. California is one of two states with the most extensive civic education programming, utilizing all proven practices and requiring multiple courses to graduate. I go into these arguments in more detail in my paper, which you can check out on the blog. 
So how do each of the states fare in achieving their thinkers' goals? One of the key outcomes that Mill hoped to achieve via civic education was empathy or communal understanding and shared goals. We can use polarization in state legislatures to measure the extent to which policymakers realize this central quality. We will use Shore and McCarty's state legislative aggregate ideology data, which maps the ideologies of state legislators by calculating a common national political awareness test space score for each legislator. The questions on this test cover a broad range of issues and are asked in a yes-no format simulating roll call voting. Shore and McCarty's diffs measurement is the most relevant for our purposes, which is a measure of the distance between party ideological medians by chamber and is the study's preferred measure of polarization. This polarization measurement is rooted in disagreement on policy issues, given the format of the NPAT. In a more empathetic legislative body with greater communal understanding, I contend that we would expect more shared goals and less polarization. In a less empathetic legislative body, we might expect less communal understanding and greater polarization. In 2018, California actually experienced the greatest degree of polarization in both chambers of any of the 50 states studied. In treating polarization as a measure of empathy, this result might reflect Habermas's extreme commitment to pluralism as opposed to communal feeling. California pursued the most Habermasian education of our three states and explicitly advocated for pluralism in their state standards. While such a commitment to pluralism might seem to fulfill Habermas's goals, if he seeks a deliberative democracy rooted in discussions that translate to policy, extreme polarization and divisiveness would hardly seem a helpful achievement. On the other hand, New Jersey experienced the most limited degree of polarization in both chambers out of our three states, and also one of the lowest polarization rates nationally. This is the result we would expect for New Jersey and Mill. In treating polarization as a measure of empathy, this bodes well for the Millian approach to civic education. Mill emphasizes participation and discussion in order to build empathy in the citizenry. New Jersey seems to have managed to cultivate some greater communal feeling. Yet I'll note that civic education is certainly not the only or even most significantly possible explanation for this divergence. Yet the most obvious alternative explanation for the difference between California and New Jersey would seem to be greater underlying political homogeneity in New Jersey. But a look at the political makeup of the state legislature suggests otherwise. In 2018, Democrats held the state legislature's and governor's seat in both California and New Jersey. California and New Jersey experienced similar Democratic majorities and yet experienced very different degrees of polarization. The explanation for this noticeable disparity in polarization is elsewhere and civic education is one viable answer. As a quick note, Alaska experienced a middling level of polarization, closer to New Jersey's lower level than California's high degree. This doesn't provide some deep insight, but it does seem to support the notion that middle civic education is the most effective in achieving empathy. A key outcome of Schumpterian civic education is democratic self-control or a degree of refinement and ability to respect legislative outcomes. We will use the ratio of bills passed to bills proposed to measure this because passing a bill requires compromise, collaboration, and adherence to established legislative practices reflecting that self-control and the acceptance that Schumpeter expects from his citizenry. Since Schumpeter is the champion of this, we would expect Alaska to have the highest bill passage rate. Legislators should know their place, respect the opinions of the most concerned bodies, and efficiently pass bills. Taking a look at state legislature data, Alaska had about a 24% passage rate, California a 26% passage rate, and New Jersey about a 7% passage rate. Alaska achieves the second highest passage rate, falling just behind California. Perhaps this reflects the success of Schumpterian homogeneity in the ruling body and widespread democratic self-control. 
It is interesting to note that California state legislatures have the highest degree of polarization, yet achieve the greatest bill passage rate. Maybe this is pluralism come to life, with very different views coexisting to pass legislation. Or is it merely partisan groups working exclusively internally to pass partisan legislation? New Jersey, despite having the most limited degree of polarization, has a very low bill passage rate. That being said, it also introduces the most bills by far, still passing a significant number of bills overall. New Jersey has just one more legislator than California, yet introduces many more bills. Might this actually be Mill Civic Education come to fruition, with an incredibly active citizenry advocating for myriad bills, with vibrant discussions selecting only the most broadly beneficial? Moving to our final outcome, a key commitment of Habermas's civic education is preserving and respecting plurality. We will use race and gender data of state legislators to determine the degree to which each state realizes respect for pluralism, or the ability of different groups and ideas to coexist. Race and gender data in state legislatures offers us insight into whether different interests and groups are adequately represented and respected at the legislative level. Being elected into office means being given a voice and power providing some measure of state-by-state pluralism. White legislators compose 88% of Alaska's legislature, 55% of Californians, and 73% of New Jersey's. Looking at the state's overall demographics, 60% of Alaska's residents are white, 36.4% of California's, and 54.5% of New Jersey's. So in every state, white individuals are overrepresented. Yet California does have the greatest relative representation of non-white legislators, as 45% of legislators are not white. Furthermore, among female representatives in California, white representatives are not the most populous group, as Hispanic and Latino representatives make up the largest portion of female representatives. This seems to be a realization of Habermas's commitment to pluralism and respect for differences in background and belief. Yet this is certainly compromised by the state's much greater overall diversity compared to Alaska and New Jersey. Shouldn't California be expected to have the most diverse body given its population? Hasn't it actually underachieved, particularly severely, relative to New Jersey and Alaska, given its underlying population? Looking at our other states, though Alaska and New Jersey have similar percentages of white populations, New Jersey has a slightly more racially diverse legislative body. Perhaps you can attribute this middling level of racial diversity to million empathy, though not pluralism. Only 12% of Alaskan legislators are non-white, with only one Asian, one Hispanic, one Black, and one Native American legislator represented. Even though Alaska's population includes the most white individuals of the three, these numbers are still disproportionate to Alaska's population. Could this be a reflection of Schumpeterian elitism, successful in preserving long-dominant power structures? Schumpeter argues that entrenched social class and hierarchy is the only means of ensuring quality democratic leadership. Alaska pursues Schumpeterian limited informal civic education and seems to uphold entrenched long-existing power dynamics. Yet briefly considering gender, men dominate in all three states, though especially in California and New Jersey. Alaska is actually more pluralistic than California in this regard. Ultimately, each thinker seems to accomplish their personal goals to a degree when it comes to pluralism, though California's results are a bit disappointing given Habermas' insistent commitment to pluralism and the background advantage of the state. So taking this contemporary view, broadly speaking, each thinker successfully fulfills their own desired metric the best. In achieving empathy through limited polarization, New Jersey is the most successful as expected, and California is the least successful as expected, again, given its commitment to pluralism and realizing democratic self-control and high rates of bill passage. Alaska is not quite as successful as expected, but close, 
and New Jersey is the least successful, which might be expected from the most participatory and involved citizenry. In demonstrating respect for plurality through a diverse legislative body, Habermas in California is it's technically the most successful, though the statement is compromised by its underlying advantage. And Alaska is the least successful as expected, given its commitment to entrenched hierarchies. Yet should we treat these successes equally? Where Mill is successful, he is significantly more successful than the other thinkers. Mill is unambiguously successful where Schumpeter and Habermas leave room for question. New Jersey is the least polarized state of all three states. California technically has the most pluralist legislative body, but still overrepresents white individuals and underrepresents women, even with its much more diverse underlying citizenry. Finally, Alaska does not successfully pass the most bills despite expectations that it should. Instead, it is outpaced by California, and New Jersey actually introduces the greatest number of bills. Again, not an unequivocal success. Thus, from our limited analysis, it seems that Mill's participatory civic education is best able to achieve its particular goals and perhaps be the most able to approximate the intelligent, moral, high-quality individual necessary for all three types of successful democracy. It's important that I note some shortcomings of this approach that I delve into more in the paper. Legislature data is an imperfect measurement of all of these qualities. Demographic data is certainly an imperfect measurement of pluralism. And civic education is just one explanation for all these differences. Yet I still think this work is relevant because it demonstrates who can and who has the resources to get elected at the state level. So where does all of this leave us? We have three very different democratic thinkers, all require some civic education to support the institutional procedural elements of democracy. From a contemporary perspective, it seems that Mill might be the best able to achieve his goals and perhaps all of their goals given that they all seek to develop intelligent, high-quality citizens. Yet, though this seems a likely possibility, this paper did not identify Mills or any one system of civic education as the solution to all the shortcomings of American democracy. The results of this paper beg the broader question, which of the thinkers' outcomes is the most important, empathy, pluralism, or democratic self-control? This is a crucial avenue for future work. What do we value most as Americans? And which theory instead of practices best achieves this? What other theories are there out there? Look, we don't have the answers to all of these questions, but what we do know is that we need civic education. Every single one of our thinkers told us that. Even the most elitist, minimalist thinker Schumpeter confirmed that institutions alone are not enough. So maybe... Just maybe, improvements in civic education might meet some of the shortcomings of our declining democracy. Thank you very much for listening to this hopefully not too boring episode of Hot Philosophy. This thesis was a labor of love, but also blood, sweat, and tears. So thank you for listening. Please subscribe and share this podcast if you enjoyed it, and I will see you next time.